guys, I'm Jess. Uh, welcome to RUS. Um, glad this week's over. So, um, glad to see you all here. And if you're wondering what you walked into, we're a Christian group here on campus. Um, but we're for anybody. We're here to um, explore God's word with people and figure out what it means to live as a Christian, um, walking to class and sitting on Zoom and eating breakfast um, and doing your homework. And what does that mean? What does that look like? So we're here to do that. We're here to provide community and friendship um, and a place to be yourself, to find friends. Um, yeah, so we're glad you're here. If you have any questions about what we do tonight, the words that we say when we sing, um, anything that Jonathan says, um, any of us up here would love to talk to you. Deborah and Madeline and Jonathan would all love to talk to you about any of the questions you have. Um, find one of us, Deborah, Jonathan, and Madeline all have their numbers on the sheet, so if you want to text them. We're all on here. Um, so the events. Events are a little different this semester than they have in the past. So this semester we're doing a new thing called Open Church. And so right across the street here, there's the big church, the brown church with the green roof. Um, if you go there on Thursdays from 11 to 2, there's free food. There's ping pong, chess, foosball, um, hangouts, people, coffee. Um, come hang out. Come do homework. Come just be with other people in person for a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's super fun. We've gone past week and we've had sandwiches and Chick-fil-A, so it's also not crappy. Um, Quattro's. Come to Quattro's, join Quattro's. We haven't signed up. It's uh, on here how to do that. Um, talk to Deborah, talk to Madeline, talk to myself. Um, we'd love to point you in the direction for that. Follow us on Instagram. Um, I think that's on here, maybe. Um, follow us on Ruby. We talk a lot about what we're going to do on Ruby. Um, and yeah, Discord. Oh, Discord. If you like to play games, Deborah is your person. Um, we have a Discord every Friday night. Join her and some other people as you guys play games. Awesome, thanks.
Hey everybody, how's everyone tonight? Yeah, go ahead and take a seat. It's good to see you all tonight. I'm glad uh, I'm glad y'all are here tonight. Thanks for braving the cold and uh, yeah, for braving the wind and coming tonight. Uh, I hope that um, you hear something, sing something, read something that is encouraging and that is good for you. 
Um, like Jessica said, like I hope you're getting a vibe for we're a Christian group on campus, and um, we are really committed to meeting, uh, even in the midst of pandemic, uh, safely, but also still intentionally meeting, uh, because we're convinced that uh, human interactions around faith, around faces, are what are going to sustain us uh, as we go into 2021, uh, as we try to navigate stress and depression and all those things. Um, so it's good to be here tonight. Um, for those of you who helped move lights today, I'm super thankful. Um, I hope that you can, uh, you can come again. Just as a quick shout out to everyone else, if you want to help us move lights, uh, we will buy you dinner. We'll buy you Chick-fil-A, and so you just meet. Uh, you can join our group meeting, we'll remind you, but we'll buy, we'll buy you Chick-fil-A if you help us move lights. Um, and then also, if you are interested in helping us with a music team, we're definitely looking for musicians. So if you play an instrument or sing, uh, and you want to get your big break, your bigger break started, uh, come talk to me, and I'd love to get you connected with our music team. Um, so we are going to continue tonight studying the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is an amazing book, and we are studying it uh, this semester because it has this um, just this really incredible um, relevance to the to the lives that we are living right now as Christians in 2021. Um, it just feels like we face a lot of op opposition as Christians, uh, and. Uh, it's nothing new. The early church faced many similar circumstances, a lot of opposition. And yet, even in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit proved himself faithful to the church uh, so that the church not only could survive, but actually grow and thrive in the midst of that. And so it's a really great book for us tonight. And we're going to continue studying that tonight. Um, I'm going to start us off this way. I'm going to give us a quick story about something I read this week that is... Um, painfully accurate to the lives that college students are encountering right now, but I'll tell you it is, um, it's intense. Um, it deals with suicide. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I want to warn you, but I also want to encounter something that college students are, are struggling with right now. I read a statistic this week that uh, over a quarter, over 25% of 18 to 24 year olds have had thoughts about their own death in the last year. And so this is um, statistically, there's at least, oh man, five people here tonight. And that's true of this campus. And so um, we got to see what scripture has to say about that. I read this piece in the ES in ESPN earlier uh, this week about a baseball player named Drew Robinson. Now, maybe you all heard of Drew Robinson. He played all kind of triple A baseball, pro baseball. And uh, he was kind of a rising star. He was a really great, he is, he's still alive, I'll just, I'll give it away, but he, uh, he's a really great hitter. Um, or, and uh, he was, you know, he, had, he was getting money, he had a great personality, he had good looks. And uh, so here he is looking really good, and yet also he was fighting a crippling battle of depression. And it kind of came to a head last March when the pandemic went to its worst, and he was, um, baseball was shut down. And so this thing that was, the thing that he was looking to, to keep, you know, give him his, his identity was taken away from him. And so he really started to spiral. And last year, April 16th, he hit a low point and um, he attempted suicide by shooting himself in the head. And he failed. Um, he did not end up 
is you know succeeding and killing himself, but he ended up doing a ton of damage to his face. And uh, he, he, he blew out his right eye, quite literally, and then he wrecked his left eye and wrecked his sinuses, and his skull was, was in many pieces. Um, he passed out, obviously, was bleeding profusely. He woke up a few hours later and was still deeply depressed, almost tried again, but didn't. And finally, um, after 20 hours of lying there, sort of bleeding, going in and out of consciousness, he called an ambulance. And an ambulance comes and they rush into the hospital, they rush into trauma care, and he has, uh, he starts a, a series of seven reconstructive surgeries and uh, to rebuild his face. And then after they had done that, they sent him into the psychiatric hospital. And while he's in the psychiatric hospital, um, he starts to ask a lot of questions about his purpose for being alive and a possible plan for his life. And as he lay in the hospital, it says in the article, he's contemplating his life, and he says there was this moment when he thought, I, am, I have to use this moment. I have to use this moment, this, this thing that was really bad. He says, I have to use this moment, this great tragedy in my life, to find purpose for my life, purpose for being alive. And so he did. He has, for the last year, used this, this depression and these, these dark thoughts as a launching pad for his own path to mental and emotional health, but also as a platform to begin talking about mental health with professional athletes and with other people and to help others and to bring awareness and to push back against stigma, the stigma of mental health. And I was reading that, and I was deeply affected by reading this story about seeing how redemptive things can come out of the most tragic of circumstances. How redemptive things can come out of the most tragic of possible events. And I'll just pause here and say, if any of you have any, have you found yourself right now in that same place of, of questioning your purpose for being alive, of wishing you were not alive, of even thinking about a plan or if you have a plan, um, please come talk to me or Deborah or Madeline. We love to listen uh, and we love to help get you the resources that you can. Um, there's no shame in that. I've been there. Many of us have been there. Um, but I think a huge part of healing is a spiritual part of healing. And in Acts 2, we see that story of Drew Robinson of great tragic events being used as a launch pad for great redemptive events on a spiritual and on a personal level. That, and, that, and it's this. What we see tonight in Acts 2 is that despite our sin, God uses, God has a plan for salvation that overcomes our sin. And we see that most clearly in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to look at a fairly large piece of scripture tonight um, that I will summarize pieces of, but then we will read it um, a little bit further down. But let me set the stage. If you remember from last week, Jesus has sent his disciples out and says, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to have you be my witnesses across the world. Not just in Jerusalem, but through the whole world, you will be my witnesses. And you're going to transform the world through that. And so that starts tonight. That, that process, well, it starts now in Acts 2, that process of uh, the witness, their witness spreading out into the whole world starts tonight. Uh, I think the paper's blown away. Away. Um, so, uh, Luke chapter four, verse four it tells us that that starts tonight that they're up on a on a, uh, on a in a house and they're and they're praying and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends into their midst and falls among them. 
and uh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's a sound of rushing wind, and there's fire, what seems to be fire over their heads. And uh, they go outside, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they start telling the crowd around them about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. And it's this, they're so ecstatic for what they believe about Christian faith that they look drunk. And the crowd around them just said, y'all are drunk. Go back inside and sober up. And Peter, who's the, uh, and oh, and they're also speaking in languages that there's a huge diversity of, of people there. Luke is very intentional. If you have a Bible, you can see, we're not going to read it because it's long, but you can see that Luke describes pretty much all of the ethnicities in the known world. Africans, Asians, Slavics, um, Arabians, people along the, around the Mediterranean. He says they're all there and they're hearing the disciples speak in their language which they probably did, they, they definitely did not know all these languages. And so Peter says, hey, we're not drunk, but what is happening is that God is at work in this very particular moment to expand the kingdom, to use broken moments for his redemption. He says, hey, what's happening? He goes through, he tells them, he says, the Messiah has come. And after the Messiah, that is Jesus, comes, there's going to be this moment of great redemption that the Holy Spirit would fall on human beings and do miraculous things. And that's what we're going to pick up in our story. And so I'm going to read this, and then we will look at it in a few different ways. So this is God's Word in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. This is part of Peter's speech. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You have made me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, may I, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Be therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn in an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my real enemies my footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me pray. Lord in heaven, as we take a look at this piece of scripture, I pray that you will be with us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed Warm our hearts, as you are so capable of doing, and that we would be transformed. Lord, as an aside, we pray for peace in Las Cruces after all these shootings today. 
We pray that you would give mercy and tender care to the family of the officer who's been shot and to the perpetrator. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage in three ways. And this is not normally how I try to look at sermons, but there's something very important uh, going on here that we need to talk about. First, I want to give us just a real quick overlook at one of the most important things that is, well, an important thing that's happening in this text, which is the uh, the dynamic of speaking in tongues. Uh, And then after we look at that, I want to look at two things uh, about about, uh, God's redemptive plan in the midst of opposition. And so we'll look at this first. Uh, I want to look at the hot issue of tongues because I know that it's a hot issue and a hot topic in Christian faith today and that um, it's something that is often on your mind. Uh, and so I'll speak briefly on that. This is not a Holy Spirit gifting, nor is it a tongues uh, topic tonight, but I know it's on your own mind. Um, so as I'm talking here or throughout, if you have a question, shoot me a text and, uh, and we'll deal, deal with it afterwards. Um, I'll just say this from the right off the bat, you know, so of course this is a a famous passage of scripture that talks about tongues, about the Holy Spirit coming on to the followers of Jesus and they're speaking in tongues. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, I take the Bible at its word and that this did indeed happen. Um, But how does that apply to us today? And I'll just say this preliminary, we can dialogue about this later. In uh, RUF, we come from a tradition that's reformed, uh, reformed university fellowship, and uh, that's a particular tradition within Christian Protestantism. And the reformed tradition uh, has, as we studied the Bible as a tradition, and we studied and thought deeply about it, um, we've, we've come to the position, and I hold this position, that apostolic gifting, apostolic gifting, that is the gifting that the apostles have, uh, the apostles themselves have, which would include things like tongues and healing and slaying, you know, these sorts of things, they're not normative. They are not normative for our faith and practice today. And that might surprise some of you, that might offend some of you, you might have questions about that. So um, let's talk about it. Now, why would I say that? Well, first, I think in the book of Acts uh, and the whole Bible, it tells us that Pentecost this moment that we just read about was a very important but also very unique and special moment in God's salvation plan for history. What I'll call, what, what, what theologians will call redemptive history, or the story or the history of God's salvation of redemption. Redemptive history is basically like the highlight reel of God's saving plan, which would include God's promises to the Israelites. Uh, the Ten Commandments, and and the high point of redemptive history is Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But right after Jesus, the next snapshot, if you will, in redemptive history is the apostolic witness, and specifically Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is super active in this particular apostolic moment with gifts like healing and tongues. And these are basically the afterburners, you know? Um, it's it's this, this like knot in the engine of, of igniting the church into witness so that the church can go and spread throughout the whole world. Uh, and and, and the, the book of Acts in particular, but the whole Bible, I don't have time to go into this tonight, seems to say that this was just for this moment in redemptive history. That it was just for this moment in redemptive history. And so the implication is that 
the apostolic gifts, and I'll get to other gifts in just a second, stop or cease generally with the with when the apostolic period ends, when the apostles are effectively all uh, died or martyred. Uh, and so, what, you know, a huge implication for this for our lives is that tongues, speaking in tongues, is not necessary for salvation. I know some of you have maybe heard that before. I know I have. Uh, you'll hear churches or groups of Christians will say that unless you've spoken in tongues, you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit, you aren't a Christian. Uh, again, if you have questions, text me, but I'll just be so bold as to say I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I'm confident that is not what the Bible teaches. That goes against the whole cloth of Scripture, which states very clearly that we are saved, that we are made right with God, not by anything that we do, but by trusting in Christ and what he has done for us. And that if we were to say that tongues is something that we have to do to be saved, then all of a sudden we're adding a work into our salvation. And that is very, it's just contrary to scripture. Uh, again, text me or we can grab coffee if you want to talk more about it. Secondly, I'll say here, I think tongues here, when, when the apostles are speaking in tongues, I think these are real languages. Verse 6 tells us, and you don't have this printed because we didn't have enough paper, but verse 6 of Acts 2 says that they heard in their language. In his, in each person heard in his or her own language. Uh, which goes on to tell us that I, a, a principle about speaking in tongues that I think is very important. And Paul tells us this also in 1 Corinthians 14, that tongues must be interpreted. Tongues must be translated. That happens here. They understand the message that, that, that the apostles are saying. They're able to hear it. They're able to understand it. That tongues are um, a translated real language. And Luke is very clear about that by saying all these real ethnic languages are understood they understand what's being spoken. Lastly, this is so important, tongues must align with the scripture. The Bible is God's word, and it alone is our rule for faith and practice. And so I'm not totally closing the door on tongues. I think it's very, very rare, very rare. But if anything, I've heard stories, we all, I know missionaries who have heard, you know, have either experienced at this moment or themselves, but if it happens, it must align with scripture. If there's any time where it deviates from what God's word says, I would say that is not a legitimate use of tongues. This is not a tongue that is from the Holy Spirit. So um, you might be thinking, well, Jonathan, you're, you're, you're squishing what the Holy Spirit can do. Not at all, I don't think. This in no way diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit. And in case I, you know, I'm playing, you think I'm playing down the power of the Holy Spirit. I am, I'm not trying to be hard on our Pentecostal or charismatic brothers and sisters. Uh, the Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit is actively gifting and empowering each Christian with very unique, very special gifting that only you have. If you are a Christian here tonight, there is a unique set of gifting that the Holy Spirit has given you that is only yours, and that the community of Christians as the church desperately needs. That's why I say it's not enough for you to just watch and consume RUF or church from your computer screen. The church needs your gifting, because it's only yours. Gifts like teaching and charity and mercy and joy and peace. 
And in fact, I'll just be hard on my own tradition. I think the Reformed tradition is probably not learning well, has not learned how to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that we can actually learn a thing or two about this from our, uh, our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters. So in summary, and then we'll move on, tongues in Acts 2 is the Holy Spirit empowering specifically the apostolic church to speak real languages for evangelism of the nations. And this practice, it might happen today, um, but it is significantly on a lesser scale than it did then. Takeaways from this, you don't need tongues to be saved. I'm confident of that, and the Holy Spirit has given you a unique and personal, powerful gifting for you to use to love your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Okay, well, enough with that. I know that sort of felt like a lecture, but I felt like I needed to, to speak about that. Um, now let's look at uh, let's look at let's shift gears a little bit and look at our main point. The main point of this passage is that God's redemptive plan is greater than the opposition. But here's the, I mean, that's, that's the main point of this plan, is God's redemptive plan is greater than the opposition. Well, what's the opposition? What's the opposition? Well, in this passage, frankly, the opposition is human sin. The opposition is human sin. Um, look at verse 22 through 23. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by the God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did himself in your midst. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then at the very end, in verse 36, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the first point here is God is man's opposition to God's plan. God has a plan for the salvation of all humans, you, me, his creation. And yet, Peter says, humans oppose that plan, even to the point of killing Jesus. So Super Bowl Sunday is this Sunday. I know that I'll watch the football game. Um, watch group me, there may or may not be an RUF football party. I can either confirm or deny. Uh, I love football. I'll be watching the game. I don't love pro football, but I love college football. And one of the things that I love about college football is watching the post-game interview with the players because they're so amped up, especially when their team wins. They're so hyped up on adrenaline. And, and uh, one of the things that they say every single time, and I love this about them, is they'll just say, like, man, we had so much adversity. This team has overcome so much adversity. This team has just, we have just risen through so much adversity. We, we you know, it's even a meme, like, right? You that, that meme of the football players, like, they had us in the first half, not going to lie. Over and over again, they talk about the adversity that the team overcomes. And uh, the repeated theme is the opposition or adversity they face. Well, that's what Peter is doing here. He says it over and over again, that God has a plan for the redemption of this world, but he faces constant opposition from human beings, from, as Peter says, even the audience. Verse 23, that God has a plan, a foreknown strategy to save everything in creation, and yet there's been tremendous opposition. Peter says here, God has a plan, and you, O audience, O Israel, get in the way of that plan. You crucified and killed the key piece of his plan, Jesus Christ, and even that was a part of his plan, but you still did it, and you're liable for that. And behind all of this, 
Behind what Peter is saying here is a deep and important theological truth, and it's this. It's at the core of the Christian faith that we humans are, are naturally hostile and opposed to God and his plan. And that apart from God doing something pretty radical in our lives, in our hearts, we will always be opposed to God and his plans. And that's because of our sin, right? That sin at its core is rejection of God and his plan and his rule. Sin is opposition to God. Ephesians 2 says this. It says that apart from God, human beings, natural human beings, men, women, babies, everyone, are dead in sin and allied with deep forces of wickedness and evil, opposing God, opposing Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not that bad, Jonathan. I'm not fundamentally opposed to God. Maybe I don't think about God that much, but I'm not that opposed to him. But think about who Peter is talking to here. He's talking to a bunch of people from around the world. He's talking to Africans. He's talking to Europeans. He's talking to Slavs. He's talking, talking to Arabians. He's talking to a huge pile of people who probably were not present when Jesus was crucified, who were not necessarily there. And yet he says, you crucified Jesus. What he's saying here is this, look, even if you weren't there when Jesus was killed, you are still spiritually opposed to Jesus because you're dead in your sin. The offense of the Christian gospel is that you and I are as bad, that bad even if we don't think we are. And in fact, if we think we're not that bad, we're actually misunderstanding ourselves because to see how, how broken, how sinful we are, a key trait of of sinfulness is not thinking that you're that sinful. It's a fundamental truth of the Christian faith that we are all sinners and deserving God's just wrath. That we break God's law in minor and small ways and in big ways. And yet, even in the midst, look what he says in verse 22 and 23, even in the midst of our sinfulness, God uses it, God uses great evil for his redemptive plan. It's amazing how he does that. That's the second point, is that God's plan is greater than our opposition. Verse 22 and 24 again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was delivered up to be crucified. So he says God is capable of using even human, even your and my sinfulness to accomplish great redemptive moments in your and in my life and to redeem us even from our sinfulness. God is so wise and so awesome that he can use what we intend as evil for his own good purposes. Think of Drew Robinson. His suicide attempt, which was a terrible thing, a great terror, it was a great terror, is now being used to promote awareness, and remove stigma and to bring healing to not just Drew, but to professional athletes and to anyone who struggles with mental health and with emotional health. Out of something as wicked as trying to shoot yourself, as broken as trying to shoot yourself. Even now I'm sure, I don't know if Drew is a Christian or not, but I'm sure that the Holy Spirit can use even that moment to prevent another person from dying. 
If the Jews, think of it this way, if, about what Jesus, if the Jews had not killed Jesus, we would still be in our sin. If the Jews had not killed Jesus, then Pentecost would not have happened. And we would still need this whole rigmarole of sacrifice and waiting for God to finally deal with our sin. In verse 31, look at verse 31. He says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, saying, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh see corruption. He's saying that David, the great King David, writing in the Psalms thousands of years before Jesus was even going to come, somehow through God, through the Holy Spirit, anticipated, prophesied, foresaw that God had a plan to save creation and that nothing, nothing, not even human sinfulness could get in the way of that. In fact, God in his total power would use human sinfulness to accomplish his redemptive and saving plan. So what is God's plan? What is this plan that God has? Well, Acts 2 shows us. Shows us that God's plan is God creating a multilingual, multinational, across-time community of people who have been saved from their sinful opposition of God and brought into his love and mercy and affection. That's what we have here. He says at the beginning, we have a group of people who know nothing about God, and then Pentecost happening, boom, the Holy Spirit falling onto the, onto the apostles. The apostles coming out and witnessing about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and them telling them, you must trust in who Jesus is, and the people are cut to the heart. The next verse says, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do in Jesus? And Peter says, believe in Jesus. Be baptized and be saved. And it says 3,000 people became Christians that day. That's God's redemptive plan. That's God's amazing plan for your life, for mine and for the church. This means at least, I think, two things for us. There's so much here, but at least two things. It's first, it's the big plan and the small plan. The big plan means that God has a plan for creation, for the whole world, for the salvation of everything that you see, hear, and touch. I don't know about you, but if you think about that for long enough, it comes to be really, really good news. Think about all the things that need God's redemptive touch in our world. Racism, pandemic wrecking our lives, job loss, our school, substance abuse, greed, corruption, corporate fraud, military coups, everything that we look when I turn on the radio or look on Twitter that feels overwhelming, that feels out of control. Acts 2 tells us that God is in deeply involved in that, even using broken things in his big plan of redemption, and that he's capable of turning the worst things into the good, into, in for his good. Acts, Acts 2 shows us that God is in total control, and that if he can bring good things out of the death of his own son, he can bring good things to our lives today. So that's the big plan. Second thing is the, the small plan. The small plan is, if he has a big plan, he also has a small plan for your and my life. Often I feel like I'm just atoms and feelings hurtling through the Milky Way. <laughs> and Acts 2 shows us that God has taken all the major steps for you to be saved from your sin and to bring you into peace with him and to welcome you into a new community. I need to hear that. 
that God is intimately involved in my life, in my story, saving me from myself even, saving me from things that want to hurt me. And if you are a Christian, on the day when your feelings overwhelm you, when the pandemic frustrates you, when there's drama in your family, I want you to remember Acts 2, that if God is in control of, of all the things, then he's in control of your life. And he can bring good things out of even the worst things. I believe he's doing that for someone like Drew Robinson. I don't, I don't know if he's a Christian like I said, but I trust that God is at work to bring life and purpose and meaning out of a suicide attempt. And I think the same is true for you. That in your depression, in your anxiety, in your sin, in your brokenness, God has a redemptive plan that's more powerful than any opposition, including your own. That's an amazing hope. What does that mean for you? I don't know the details. I don't, I don't understand. I'd love to explore it with you, but I know that God wants you to trust in Jesus as a Christian and a non-Christian. When Peter speaks, 3,000 people say, oh my gosh, I'm in. I'm all in for this. I want to be a part of this mission of God's plan. And then the church explodes. And so I'll close with this. If you aren't a Christian, I'll ask you a simple question. Why not? Why not? I'll echo Peter's word that he tells his audience. He says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you receive the forgiveness of your sins, and get caught up in this big plan to save everything. And if you are a Christian, Pentecost shows us what witness looks like. It's the Holy Spirit filling us with special power to show others how God changes us, even despite ourselves through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You get to be a part of that. How awesome is that? How awesome that you get brought into the Holy Spirit's both huge plan and small plan to empower you to tell other people how much Jesus loves them. No matter what you're going through, God is at work. Faithfully redeeming your life and our world from sin. He's proven it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if he can do that with Jesus, he can do that with you and me. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for so much grace that you give us. And thank you for the picture that Acts 2 shows us of this, of your total control over every atom, every breath of wind, every flap of a butterfly's wing, every heartbeat of every creature on this earth. And that you are using it all to save us, even from ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would be able to, as a community at New Mexico State, internalize that message and that it would warm our hearts so that we can't not tell our family and our friends. We can't not get caught up in the story that you are doing, that we would be bold to say, I am a witness to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, and I want you to join in. May that be true of me and of the friends here tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.